0: So S- Sarah is in town today visiting the, the Ryerson Global Fellow f- from Ryerson, as a Ryerson Global Fellow from the Ryerson, Ryerson Leadership Lab, an action-oriented think tank aimed at addressing today's most pressing civic challenges. Thanks to Ryerson for your help in, organize, in helping us organize today's event. Uh, we also have uh, Kareem Bardisi here from Ryerson and a number of students who uh, are here. Can you, can you stand up the students from Ryerson who are, are here? That would be great. Thank you. This evening's topic is the changing nature of political communications. And when I think about the changing nature of political communications and the role that this speaker has had with a former President Obama, I, also, I can't stop thinking how much things have changed in the last few years. And how the environment has changed uh, since working for President Obama. A few weeks ago, I was sitting around watching the funeral of the senior George Bush, and all of a sudden when I saw George Bush, George W. Bush, I blurted out, out, oh my God, I missed that guy. (laughs) And my wife's there going, are you crazy? Did you just say that? And I'm like, I said that. I didn't even know I thought it. But I think one of the things for all of us who have have been watching what's going down in the U.S. is we see that things have changed so much. And, And differences that we thought between Presidents Clinton and Bush, which at the time we thought were monumental differences in retrospect seem to be very small between the difference between President Obama and the current president and, re- and so some of those changes include historic changes to global alliances when you have a president calling uh, Vladimir Putin his best friend when you have uh, you have a deliberate polarization of the general public in ways we could not have imagined and we have an extra Increasingly, acceptance of nationalism and mainstream conversations about white supremacy that you would not have imagined before. But perhaps the most alarming trend is this erosion of fact-based discussions and an increased ambiguity around what is truth. Senator Moynihan once said, quote, everyone is entitled to their own opinion but not their own facts, unquote. Right now that doesn't, that seems to be up for debate. Politics has always been a pro- problem that has been always a problem in politics to some degree, and we all know Bill Clinton had his moment about it uh, depends on the definition of what d- depends on what the definition of "is is. but since then, uh, b- the Clinton example, there was clear public outrage, and I think we're in a territory where it's not clear whether lying or misrepresenting facts causes any outrage or any real consequences and so that is something that I hope the speakers will get into today. We have 4,000 false claims that our current president has had, according to the Toronto Star, in over 720 days into a presidency. And this new political environment that today's speaker is navigating is not an easy feat. And while we haven't experienced anything close to that in Ontario, in political communications, we have had the example of Ontario Proud playing a significant role in our recent election. So for all these reasons, We wanted to do this event tonight and we've had we're really lucky to have Sarada and we're so glad you're here and I think this event sold out so quickly because uh, of just the times we're living in and how interesting it is so with that I'm going to start the introduction so to lead tonight's discussion is with our future speaker we we, we have Don Guy and everyone knows what Don has been up to Uh, today uh, he has been described as a legendary political strategist, a brilliant strategy and a policy wizard who has a unique understanding of the nexus between communications and policy. However, you, if you ask Don exactly how many electoral victories he has been responsible for, he says things like, I don't know, these things are team efforts. A lot of people deserve the credit. But everyone knows his reputation for coming back from third place victories, second place vid- victories to win. In elections all across Canada. He has recently returned to Polara but now is an owner and chief strategist. He's a founding partner of KTG Public Affairs and is a member of global research and strategy from Greenberg, Quinlan, Rosner Research and has provided a research and strategies that have fueled some of the most successful public affairs, public affairs campaigns in Canada. Don is a treasurer of the Interaction Council of former heads of state and government an international NGO think tank, Don's graduate academic training was at the University of Toronto, where he took his MBA and doctoral studies in political and democratic behavior. Please welcome to the stage, the pollster, strategist, and man of, in- man of international mystery, Don Guy. <laughs> and finally, tonight's future speaker, is a speechwriter and communication strategist who has helped top leaders and th- thinkers. From Fortune 50 CEOs to the President of the United States, she inspires and persuades audiences. She was special assistant to the President and senior speechwriter for President Barack Obama. Prior to joining the White House, she was a principal at West Wing Writers, where she worked with corporate, political, and nonprofit clients on speech writing, speech delivery, op eds, books, and message strategy. She was a member of the 2012 and 2016 Democratic National Convention speechwriting teams. A recovering policy wonk, Serrita worked on Capitol Hill as lead education and health care policy advisor to former Senator Mary Landrieu. She started her career as a high school English teacher in New Orleans through Teach for America. Sierra graduated from Tufts University and holds a Master in Public Policy from Harvard's Kennedy School. Please put your hands together for speechwriter and communication strategist, Sarita Perry. Thank you, thank
1: you so much.
2: Thank you. Hi. Hi. Well, uh, first of all, let me just say uh, uh, thank you, uh, Kent, for the uh, introduction and the fantastic opportunity to be here and spend some time uh, chatting with uh, Sarita. Uh, whose work I admire tremendously. And I, I there's so many familiar faces and in the crowd, I think will be well treated. Uh, but you never know. Um, I know of at least one individual who brought hard dinner rolls to throw if he didn't <laughs> like what he heard. Um, but uh, uh, I just want to take a personal moment to say, um, so many of you here are responsible for the successes that I have uh, been attributed credit for. And I wanna thank you from the bottom of my heart for all your hard work. Um, so another way of thinking about this event is old and busted meets young and fresh. <laughs> and so as a result, uh, I'm gonna, but I, 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 I would imagine um, many of you are familiar with Sarah Work, but perhaps uh, not uh, some of, uh, what she's really all about. So I thought we would start with a short snap around, a two-minute snap around uh, of uh, questions um, that would help you get to know her a bit before we dive into the meat of the subject. Uh, and uh, apologies to any vegans or vegetarians for the use of that uh, metaphor. <laughs> so let's start with a tough one. Okay. Sarada, uh, who's your favorite president?
3: Other than the one I worked for?
2: Could be the one you worked for.
3: Um... He, he, I feel like I can't say him because then you'll all think I'm biased, So, although he is you know, in my, my top presidents. Um, I would say my two favorite presidents are two of the favorite presidents of most Americans or many Americans, Lincoln and Franklin Delano Roosevelt.
2: Excellent. And what was your favorite moment working for the president that you worked for?
3: Oh, gosh. There were so many. Um, most of my day involved staring at a blank Word document in a sea of self-loathing. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but I think uh, my, one of my uh, favorite days, and this is a strange day to say was a favorite day. Um, some of you all may know that in uh, 2016, 2015, in Charleston, South Carolina, a white supremacist walked into a church and murdered nine black churchgoers. It was a horrific day. And, um, and it, was, it was a really tough moment in our country. And on the day that the president was scheduled to give the eulogy down in Charleston, which turned out to be one of his finest speeches, that I had nothing to do with, by the way, um, was also the day that the Supreme Court ruled in favor of same-sex marriage equality. And. Um, And I did get to work on that speech, and I actually had written multiple versions because we didn't know how the court was gonna rule. And I remember that morning, my boss Cody had been working on the Charleston eulogy all night long with the president, and I had been working on these multiple drafts, and and, and, suddenly the decision came down and my colleague next door to me emailed me and just said, in all caps, total victory. And it was this strange day where suddenly we're in motion. The president went to the Rose Garden and delivered the victory speech that we had worked on. And, um, and it, was, it was such a moment for our country. Um, and then he immediately got in the helicopter, went to Andrews Air Force Base, flew to Charleston, and gave, I think, one of the greatest eulogies that's been given. And, um, and then that night, um, a team at the White House had planned that the whole White House would be lit up in rainbow colors in honor of the decision. And it was just one of these days when I felt like somehow this president, despite everything we had been through, brought the country together. And I had very little to do with that day, but I, I felt like as an American, I was, I was just proud of that day.
2: That's, I think many of us <laughs> felt the same. Uh, who's your least present? Least favorite president?
3: Oh, I think you all can guess.
2: <laughs> and what's your least favorite moment in this individual's presidency? And I, th- I think it's safe, to, I can say, his presidency, uh, given the track record.
3: Yeah. Um, it is hard to choose, guys. It's hard to choose. But I will say the one, I think the, the sort of the, the moment that, that is, it's actually still going on, that I felt... Like this person is apatriotic, like as an unpatriotic, a patriotic It's just not even—it's not even in his mind—and has uh, no moral compass. Was the day we learned that his administration had been separating, had been kidnapping people's children, people who had been coming over to seek asylum at the border and putting them in cages. I mean, if you if you see the word to, the the term toddler jails. In a, in a newspaper in your country, you know something is, is deeply wrong, that we have, we have gone astray. Um, I think that was, I mean, as an American, as a mom, I mean, it was just, as a human being with any sense of morality, it was such a devastating thing to learn and to feel so helpless in your own country.
2: Um, well, let's, let's start at the top of the funnel in terms of the topic of the evolution of political communications and uh, work our way down, so I guess the question that I think is on many people's minds who uh, have either practiced the craft or have not is, what the heck is going on?
3: Hell What's going on in the world
2: right
3: now? How <laughs> <laughs> if I know. Um, I think uh, from, a, from a political communications standpoint, I actually think the fundamentals are kind of still there. So so Donald Trump broke a lot of norms, right? He, he he basically violated everything that people in our profession would say one ought to do when they are running for president, making him disqualifying. And in some ways he was so unpresidential as to, be, as to make him president, right? He just, he ran through all these norms. There are a lot of reasons he won, but what is interesting is that while doubling down on his views, showing zero empathy for anybody who is not loyal to him, sort of at a personal level, and really just stoking the fears of his base, keeps them loyal to him. And it, because they keep him in power, that keeps the Republican establishment loyal to him, uh, which has been disturbing, I think, to people who thought that the Republican Party had more integrity than that. But if you look at the country writ large, I mean, he is extremely unpopular he's got the lowest approval rating of any president since polling started basically um, nationally people don't like how he communicates the most people think that he has something to do with Russian collusion in our election most people think and is true he lies constantly right I mean nobody thinks that this is somebody who communicates in a way that's honest But I think that what he did do was sort of bring to the forefront the now overused term authenticity, right? He was himself. He is authentically a racist, but he's authentic. And I think that that actually did work for people who were kind of sick of people like me and Don consulting the heck out of candidates. And um, what I think you're seeing now that's really interesting is that now other people are doing that, but in ways that are honest and have integrity and are reaching new audiences. So if you look at the rise of the uh, many of the Democrats who won in our 2018 midterms, we just had midterms, Um, and the Democrats won back the House, and you see some of the people who did really well, and I'll use Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Congresswoman from New York, as an example, she's a a truly skilled, gifted, authentic communicator. Right? She knows how to reach her constituents and young people all across the country using social media. She's very much herself, Um, I think just today, she tweeted something, you know, related to like both skincare and the 70% marginal tax on wealthy people. I mean, it's really <laughs> impressive. Uh, really impressive stuff. And she's and what she's also doing really well is opening up the process of what happens in Congress to people. So she'll come home from her work day and then she'll do, you know, an Instagram story of explaining how Congress works, um, which is remarkable and I think is really appealing to people. So Yes, what, what Trump did was break the whole system and he's trying to burn our country down. The flip side is I think we're seeing people, good people, uh, people who are true public servants, take that and go in a better direction with it and communicate really authentically, which is actually exciting. So, if there's anything silver lining, maybe that's it, I don't know. Mm.
2: And what, what would you see, uh, I mean, AOC is a great example. Is she sort of the counter, both in terms of use of the tools, uh, but also in approach and authenticity to that Trump phenomenon, that communications and brand phenomenon?
3: I mean, maybe, except and this is maybe not answering your question, but going back to your previous question, of course we're all in our own echo, media echo chambers, right? So now our news cycle, as you all know very well, has been diced and sliced and bisected into a million different filters. You can listen to news that comes only from outlets whose opinion you share. Um, those, those outlets will double down on their views, and people are living in those echo chambers. So you know, Fox News is doing a lot to trash her and they're succeeding in their own, with their own base. Um, and so that's still a problem. I mean, I think that what has shifted is, could someone like Obama, I mean, I think this is what we're thinking about for 2020, could someone like Obama, who had a really univ- a, a message of universal values and one of sort of hope and change and unifying the country, could that person win anymore? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Um, and I think that's what's scary, mm-hmm. um, whether that even resonates anymore or whether we are all and I'm sure you guys feel this here, whether we are so so locked in our own little bubbles and so hunkered down that we can't even get past that. And the idea of coming together is almost anathema, you know?
2: Well that begs the question. I mean, one of the things that I think has happened with the media atomization uh, is the economics of political communications have fundamentally shifted the same way that they have with media. Yeah and you question whether the economics of persuasion uh, makes sense anymore compared to the economics of polarization. Right. And what's your sense of that? <laughs> is, there, is there a way out of that? Or is the model permanently broken?
3: I hope not. Um, I still think that people don't necessarily enjoy being polarized. I mean, yes, there's something nice about finding community in other people who hate Donald Trump, but um, but I think there was a reason so many people gravitated towards Barack Obama, and I do think people still want hope more than they want fear. So I have I say take some solace in that. Where I think the changing economics of political communications is going to be interesting is that. So I don't know how it works here in America. I think there's probably a lot more money in politics. Uh, I mean, in Canada, I mean, it's a lot more money in politics in America. But the the sort of the big dollars in politics and political communications is in media buys, television ads. And that's not really how people consume information anymore. So there's going to be a really interesting struggle between digital media and TV and how you communicate authentically to different audiences, at different demographics, different ages, and that I think is gonna be, that could actually change the system fundamentally. Um, but I, what, what is also, the other thing I wanna say about that is if you look at the people who succeeded in 2018, they, they invariably were not talking about Trump. They were not doing negative attacks on the president. They really were offering an affirmative vision for the people they hoped to represent. Um, And those are the people who won. That was kind of the strategy for the Democrats at a national level, but also what was going on in in district races. And so, again, maybe that means that polarization isn't necessarily always a winning formula. And again, if you look at how unpopular Trump is, he's he's done it really well with his base, and they're gonna stick with him. They're loyal to a fault. Beyond that, I mean, he's lost independence in pretty meaningful numbers. Right, so.
2: right. Um, so from the time you started, you know, let's say the time you wrote your first speech and today, how has the work, the task of getting a message out changed in your mind, and the organization of delivering a message?
3: I mean, I think, I think all the principles of messaging that you and I tell people we work with are the same, right? Um, you know, what is your what is the one thing you're trying to convey? What is the story that helps you tell it? How do you connect your values to your audience's values? Um, how do you figure out what moves them, what persuades them? All of those things are still the same. In some ways, though, there are sort of more opportunities um, to di- to disseminate that message and ways to maybe reach people you wouldn't normally reach. I mean, if you think about speeches from. Back in the day, uh, they were very long, <laughs> because people had traveled from a long way to hear them. You know, the, you were shouting because there weren't microphones. You know, and you know, oratory was a really different thing. So, all of that has evolved to fit what we where we are today. And. Um, I think what I found in my time at the White House, I was there during the second term, was that they had, um, they had already, already sort of figured that out. And they were starting to find new ways to disseminate messages that were not in the form of traditional speeches. As the speechwriters, we loved that because that meant we could write fewer speeches. Uh. <laughs> so that's great. But, you know, if you're trying to get a bunch of young people to sign up for health care, you're not gonna go and deliver a speech at the Chamber of Commerce, right? You're gonna do a Between the Two Ferns video. You're gonna do a BuzzFeed video. You're gonna go on Snap and do a story, whatever that is. Um, <laughs> you're, you're gonna reach them where they are, and I think the opportunities for that are, were, were exciting for us. Um, all of that comes with, a, you know, there's always a dark side to all of this, um, but that, I think, is interesting.
2: Well, I'm glad you mentioned between two ferns, because it is actually one of my favorite communications moments yeah. from President Obama, and, and I do want to point out, Ken, that in my rider, my contract rider, there were supposed to be two
1: <laughs> on either
2: side of us. but I'm willing to let it pass this time. We cactuses. <laughs> um, You know, what do you tell You mentioned something earlier I want to come back to, which is you know candidates who come to people like us or others in the room and say, you know, teach me to be authentic. Um, (laughs) When that happens, whether it's a a CEO or a a candidate for political office or whatever the case may be, what do you tell them?
3: I mean, I sigh deeply. (laughs) Uh, Obviously, you and I both know that if someone's coming to you and asking you that question, they haven't done the hard work of figuring out why they want to be in public life or be a leader. Um, and so it's always turning the question back. I mean, I spend a lot of time when I work with people sort of interviewing them, just mm. trying to figure out what makes them tick, right? You know, why, are, you have to be able to answer the why. Mm. And um, uh, I think that now there is this this is what I was saying earlier about this kind of overused term authenticity. I, I blame Trump for this um, and people seeking something, some magic sauce. Um, but it really is about getting them to do the internal work and asking, you know, doing the inquiry to figure out why they want to be doing the thing that they're seeking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's hard. And you can always tell when people aren't ready for it. You know, you can always tell a politician who's not quite ready for prime time. It's not that they, you know, aren't polished, it's that they haven't done the internal work. Right.
2: I've always found it a challenge because Part of my answer is you have to have the courage to be yourself, you have the courage to open up and be judged uh, for good or for bad. But I was speaking with uh, uh, somebody who was thinking about running uh, earlier today, uh, who's fantastic and very authentic and, you know, her family were saying to her, I'm not sure you should do this because of how awful the climate is right now Mm. and the kinds of attacks, and lies and unfair things that you'll be subjected to, and and probably fair to say, regardless of which side of the partisan aisle that you're uh, you're entering on, what do you say to those folks?
3: Well, I think you brought up an interesting uh, point because you said she. Mm-hmm. So I think that the authenticity piece is a lot more fraught for women candidates, leaders, because the double standards are through the roof, as we all know, right? Mm-hmm. So. You know, I, I hear a lot of people, for example, you know, talk about how Bernie Sanders could have beat Donald Trump. Um, I will spare you my views on this. Um, Please don't. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but what I want to say, and, and you know, Bernie was so authentic. You know, why couldn't Hillary be more authentic? Does anybody really think, really, that a, a female candidate in her 60s could get up somewhere yelling with her hair undone flying everywhere? talking about a revolution and, and anyone was going to vote her for dog catcher? I mean, what nonsense. Of course a woman couldn't do that, right? It's preposterous. Mm. And that, that double standard, I think, has, has hindered women candidates for so long because, I mean, every time I work with a woman candidate, she is wondering, is my voice too high? You know, am I wearing the right clothes? You know, how can I sound? And so all of that, I think, ends up um, making women candidates seem inauthentic, and it's only because they're trying to suppress their real selves because the patriarchy has told them, we don't want your real selves. Your real self is not a leader, and we're not going to vote for you. So again, what I think is exciting about this most recent crop of winners in America, at least, is that they really broke some new boundaries on political communication for women. I mean, some of these political ads, um, even from people who didn't win, Mm -hmm were inc- were so exciting and different and um you know MJ Hagar who ran for congress in Texas she was a combat vet and she she put out some really bold ads um, you know and 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 she wasn't the only one so i think hopefully this is a moment where Women are just done putting up with this. I don't know if that means they will, we will ever elect a female president, but um, but I think that was this was a good moment to sort of push back on that. But for so long, um, and I'm sure there are lots of women in this room who know this. I mean, it's it's just been a real huge hindrance.
2: Right. I think that's well, that. And that's exactly where her, her family was coming yep, from. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. which is you're going to be subjected to something that that others. And, and probably your opponent, who's a man, is not going to uh, be subjected to Yeah,
3: it. and you know, President Obama was really clear-eyed about this. He once said about um, Secretary Clinton when they were running against each other in the primary, years later, when he talked about it, he said, You know, she, it was like Ginger Roger and Fred Astaire. You know, she had to do everything I did but backwards and high heels. You know, she had to show up four hours before a debate because they made her do hair and makeup. You know, no one made him do that. So those, those things kind of pile on. And I think, you know, President Obama was clear eyed about that later on.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the mix of uh, tools, uh, that you're using today. Uh, what would you say is the most important uh, tool or platform that you're using uh, and recommending to your clients?
3: What do you mean, tool or platform?
2: Well, is it Twitter? Is it Instagram? Oh, I see. Etc. You know, where and really, what I'm trying to get at the follow-up, which I'll just put now, is what's the future look like? Hmm. You know. From what you're seeing i mean the u.s is the innovator in political communications which is why we all watch it so closely uh we can't afford most of those things yeah. that you do but um it is the innovator so i think people here in the room and, and people watching uh online would love to hear your sense of what's next what's the next big platform or evolution yeah
3: i mean i don't know what the next big platform is and as a speechwriter i'm actually kind of a luddite and have been blown away myself by what. What's out there, um, but I do think that people want to get closer mm. to their candidates. Um, they don't want to feel like they are these distant representatives who I know nothing about. And um, and so I do think we're going to see more of, you know, Instagram stories where people are cooking and talking about their day to their constituents. Uh, I don't know what that's going to mean, but. That, that, that bar- those barriers are really breaking down, especially with young people who feel like, I want to know everything about the process. No more smoke-filled back rooms where things are going on. Put it all on camera. Show it to me in live, in living color. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am worried about Twitter and sort of the really toxic online environment, especially for women and candidates of color and what all that means. Um, at the same time, I think there's tons of opportunity there. Um, but you know, who knows what the future is gonna be? Is it gonna be that candidates are inviting you into their virtual reality room where you can imagine what it's like if they're in office? I mean, I have no idea, but, but I do think that the fundamentals remain the same, and which is that people want authentic leaders who respect them and who are transparent. Right. And that's gonna be the ballgame, whatever the platform is. Right. And I do think it's going to be insanely expensive, whatever it is, until Americans get money out of our politics. And I, I, I don't know when that's gonna happen.
2: I think part of the antidote, potentially, because we're seeing some of the very same phenomena here, mm-hmm. uh, is the doors, hmm. go back to the doors. Uh, now, running a presidential campaign, that's obviously not feasible, but I would, I would imagine that a number of the candidates who had success in the House races uh, and some of the state races, must have spent some time at doors connecting with people authentically.
3: I mean, that's the whole ballgame. It it always has been, right? Uh, Retail politics is still the most important thing. Um, You know, there were reports coming out of Iowa about how Elizabeth Warren is doing really well there, you know, just knocking on doors and having conversations with people. So um, I'm just using her as an example, but that is still the ballgame. That is how Barack Obama won the Iowa caucuses, which catapulted him and, and made the whole campaign possible. Uh, it is it is still everything. However, the what everything still costs money, and, and it's an arms race. Our every year our presidential campaigns in particular get more and more expensive, and um, and until we get rid of the kind of dark hidden corporate money that goes into, you know, who knows where it's coming from. Um, uh, they're, the incentives are just gonna be totally misaligned. Mm. But yes, I do think, going back to the point about sort of transparency and wanting to see what you're doing, that stuff still matters, especially in the early states, you know. All the, our early primary states, Iowa, New Hampshire and Caucus, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, they pride themselves on knowing, getting to know those candidates, Very much you right. know.
2: Well, there are, I think I see a couple of people in the room who actually went down and stumped for uh, President Obama, uh, Senator Obama at the time in Iowa and in New Hampshire. Uh, There were, he was so exciting to so many people north of the border that a ton of our peers and colleagues went and did that. And a lot of them consider it, you know, the most rewarding experience of their political career because of. How it was received. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got a federal election coming up here.
3: Yeah, I heard.
2: You may have been involved over the weekend (laughs) in some discussions about it. Well, there are some people from different perspectives in the room, I want to point out. Uh, This is a uh, multi faith.
1: uh, Multi faith.
2: Multi faith. We have blue, we have red, we have orange, we have, I think, one or two greens. but um, uh, what's your advice for these folks as they uh, lay track uh, for a October federal election?
3: Well, I mean, I think you and I have kind of just talked about some of the, the essentials, right? Know who you are and why you're doing it. Um, tell an ass- uh, sort of an aff- offer an affirmative vision. Don't just crap on the other guy. Um, you really got really to present an alternative if you're trying to unseat someone. Um, and if you're trying to hold power, you need to paint a vision for why, if we stay on this path, it's going to get better. I think back to what we did in 2012 for President Obama, and it was very much you know, post-economic recession. The economy was getting better, but people weren't feeling it yet. And that whole campaign was um, about you know, forward motion. We're going we're gonna to keep going. And if you stick with us, you will feel it. Um, you, gotta, you, got, you have to give something people to hang on to, something to believe in. Um, and I think probably more than ever, people are hungry for that, because there's a lot of fear <laughs> circulating in the air, and it's, it's not pleasant. That's not actually what excites people, mm. you know? And make sure your young people vote. Don't let them sit home. <laughs>
2: um. I think, uh, are you okay if we take some questions from the audience? I'm happy to do whatever you want to do, yes. Uh, So why don't we uh, do that, open up for questions uh, from the audience, and then I do have one last question that I will save until the very end. Hi, thank you for
3: coming. Um, Is Michelle going to run (laughs) in Greenhouse? I, you know, don't know her, and don't, but from all, I've read her book. Um, I'm sure some of you have too. She has been crystal clear that she will never run for public office. I I, I take her at her word. Um, I suspect that she would find it very unpleasant. (laughs) But don't we all wish? (laughs) This has been a great dialogue. My one question would be about
1: what characteristics could you see a woman winning the White House? What characteristics would it be, unlike Hillary Clinton, that they would be successful?
3: This is a very hard question. I was gonna say that she's a man. Um, (laughs) I just—I mean, I don't. I mean, I hate to—I hate to say this about my country, but I just don't trust us right now. Um, I was so heartbroken the last time you put up the most qualified person to run for president since John Quincy Adams, and. You vote for the buffoon. Um, and now, granted, there were a lot of reasons for that, in Russia and Facebook. I mean, there were a lot of reasons why you know it was it was a razor thin electoral and our dumb electoral college. I mean, she won the popular vote by three million votes. You can tell I still have a chip on my shoulder about this whole thing, um, so I will stop there. But um, you know, I think one good thing that's happening right now is that already what four women have declared. So in some senses, we're kind of neutralizing. There, there is a neutralizing of the issue that's going on. You're also seeing when the press covers these women candidates in the way they historically have which is in you know rife with double standards and in a really sexist manner people are really calling them out on it you know there is there is a truly sort of robust kind of you know, feminist-leaning media that has the vocabulary to call them out in a way that I think people were almost afraid to do with Hillary because we didn't want to make the election about gender necessarily. I mean, she did, but not as much, and certainly in 2008. So that, I think, is helpful. But I think, again, just woman or man, somebody who is ready to present themselves as their best self um, and is transparent and honest and has a, a vision that people, Want to be a part of, um, you know, like can build has the power to sort of build a movement because again, that's that is what Obama did really successfully, um, and I think we are hungry for that again. What's really interesting right now, um, I'm sure you've been hearing this a lot, is that so as Democrats, everybody is getting up in a tizzy about who's sort of most electable. You know, everybody is kind of saying whoever can win. Whoever that person is, let's put that person up. And there's a lot of debate about who who that person could be, man, woman, you know, whatever. And I I think we're just getting into our own heads a little bit. Mm -hmm. And and this is how we snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, which we do well. So I'm just, I'm a little concerned that we're kind of overthinking it right now and we have to let this primary process play out. Um, It's going to be a a bloody many-person primary and I think we just... We need to calm down a little bit as Democrats. We're we're kind of freaking out.
2: <laughs> uh I think there's a question back. Oh sorry.
0: Thank you very much for your comments, Um I'm fascinated as a political writer, um, with your comments or truth. And can you comment a little bit about how that mere sense the first man in the United States?
3: yeah that's a really interesting question. I think this is kind of a centuries long struggle for us. I mean, it has just always been the case. If you go back to you know to John adams said that John Quincy Adams said that the election of eighteen hundred was you know the the dirtiest election in his lifetime. It was what the third election America had i mean it's <laughs> uh, just you know. Really partisan news at that point. You know, newspapers were sort of openly partisan, um, not Fox parading as, as fair and balanced, but openly partisan, and you know, all kinds of slime was thrown in lies, and you know, people suing for slander. And so, I mean, this has always been a problem. It is acute, pronounced, and exponentially bigger now. But that's that tension between First Amendment rights and the uh, you know being able to sort of just lie about people. And disseminate those lies is is just ongoing, um, and I you know the one one school of thought is you just drown out the lies. Um, another school of thought is the people who believe those lies within a bubble um, are we're never going to get them anyway. But I you know we're never going to persuade them otherwise. But I think what's really interesting now is a new a new sort of regulatory challenge, which is so. Some of what they've uncovered is that it was through Facebook that you know, these Russian intermediaries were were fueling false stories about Hillary trying to you know, gin up tension, racial tension between people, you know, pretty successfully. And they were targeting the states where that, that that Trump was able to flip. And that's, I think, sort of the regulation of technology and how we, how those platforms are allowed to. Basically, self police right now is going to be a really interesting challenge. I don't know what the solution is going to be. I think there's a, you know, people really disagree about this stuff, but it is so dangerous for our democracy to allow what happened last time to continue. Um, so I, I don't have a, an answer for this. I think it's just going to be this ongoing tension, but I think these platforms are introducing a whole new strain that people before this we're not thinking about, and now we we actually have to grapple with it. And other countries, frankly, just have laws that govern it differently. I think you guys do too, you know? So they can shut it down, They you know, and we just don't have that. It's tricky.
2: So just following up on the gentleman's question, what impact do you think that independent expenditures or third-party campaigns have had on the democratic process in the US? And do you see, and again, You mentioned uh, Citizens United as being uh, the case that uh, allowed a lot of these uh, to take place. Do you think that there's gonna be some sort of regulatory uh, changes that will uh, limit these types of campaigns?
3: So this is this is really tricky. So Citizens United was a Supreme Court decision um, that basically allowed for um, these unlimited expenditures and for people to hide who they are when they make these donations, right? So it opened the flood for this kind of dark money to infiltrate political campaigns. You know, and and you'll you'll watch these ads, some you know crazy anti-Hillary ad or something, and at the bottom it, it's some cryptic name like. Americans for Justice and Cats and you're just like you have no idea who's paying for this and and it's all legal. So the challenge here is that that was a Supreme Court decision. So either, you know, the the recourse for that is tricky. Either there needs to be the Supreme Court needs to overturn its own decision, which seems unlikely given the makeup of the court, or Congress needs to do something about it. And Mitch McConnell, the August leader of the Republicans, who <laughs> also has zero moral compass, um, <laughs> has no interest. I mean, he just wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post criticizing campaign finance reform. And campaign finance reform is pretty popular in America. I mean, this guy's really off the rails on this stuff, but you know, it benefits the Republican Party. And so, um, yeah, I think, that, I think that, that not only has it kind of harmed the actual process and outcomes of elections, and given extremely wealthy people outsized power in the process, it has made people cynical. You know, it has just made people cynical about the process, and that is so dangerous for democracy. So um, it was something President Obama cared a lot about, and then we just never got anything done in Congress because Republicans don't want campaign... Well, some Republicans, the leader of the Republicans, (laughs) doesn't want campaign finance reform. And so I don't know. I do think there's an appetite for it. You know, congressional Democrats who are now in power, they're, they're introducing legislation right now to combat a whole range of these really undemocratic practices that have taken hold in our system, including uh, money and campaign finance. And this stuff is popular with voters, you know, especially young people. So it'll be interesting to see, going forward, whether we get some traction on that. At some point, like how, mu- how much money can flood the system, right? It's, it's insane. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's a good question. It really depended on the speech. Um, he is an irritatingly good writer. So he could... <laughs> it's, it's annoying. So he's one of those people who could run the world and write really good speeches if he had time, but um, he didn't have time, so hence the speech writing staff. So it really depended on the speech. You know, is this a, an education policy speech um, that is similar to ones he's given before and that we can kind of work off of and we know the policy and he's pretty comfortable with the language and so this won't be... Something that we need to waste his time talking to him about. He'll just edit it. You know, he'll he'll heavily edit the draft, but he he doesn't need to talk to us ahead of time to get words on paper. Or is it a speech about something controversial, new, something he is really passionate about? In which case, he might want, you know, then then you might get upfront guidance, or he might take a, a stab. You know, my uh, my boss Cody, who worked on sort of more, the more the bigger speeches, the the sort of more. Uh, the set pieces that were higher profile, you know, would often kind of go back and forth with him, or maybe the president would write in longhand on his yellow legal pad a couple of pages, and they would kind of go back and forth. So it really depended. Um, I'm sure that if he had the time, he would happily write the welcome for the Girl Scouts who were coming to the White House, you know. But he just, that wasn't the nature of it. So our, I mean, our job was to kind of create scaffolding, right? Give him the best possible scaffolding based on how we understood how he thought, and then. You know, let him do his work to make it his, but um, our goal was to just make his job easier, you know. possibly. Um, I don't know. I mean, if they really wanted to engage, again, the problem is that Republicans run one half of Congress. Um, And I also think that the problem is kind of bigger than America, right? I mean, so if you think about the forces behind all of this, it's forces that want to weaken our Western democratic alliances and that want to change the nature of the liberal world order post-World War II. I mean, these are fundamental world shifts they're trying to make, and they're using our political processes to do that. So the, so the problem is bigger than Facebook bots. Um, and I think it's actually gonna take kind of a global effort on the part of countries like ours that share you know, democratic values to really start to combat that. And my fear is that you know, internally, historically, this would not have been hard for an American president to call out a foreign adversary for hacking our election, that would have been a no-brainer. Um, uh, and now we have a president who seems to be in the literal pocket of Russia, but also a, his party is just sitting there, you know, and uh, they they just you know decided not to pass sanctions against. Um, an oligarch who has been hugely problematic in breaking laws left and right. I mean, this is where this is where we are, and I'm afraid that the Republicans' obsession with power is really contributing to to undemocratic trends, not just in our country but everywhere. I mean, this is I mean, Brexit, this is going to affect everybody. Um, so I just I think it's bigger than our Congress. I have no idea how we get out of this. I hope I hope all of our elections will go well, and <laughs> and uh, we'll get some leaders who actually care. But it's scary scary times. Yeah. Just, uh, so putting the hacking aside for a moment, looking at the political polarization that we're seeing across the landscape in the UK and around the world, in Europe as
1: well, in the US, in the last eight years with the Obama administration, did you not see the signs? I mean, ultimately, it comes down to the fact that the people voted him
3: in, or at least that's what we're led to believe. So what, where did you miss the signs? Um, so I don't think I personally missed the signs because I thought Trump was going to win. <laughs> I did. Um, and, uh, and I'm horrified that I thought that, but I, I very much felt like he was going to win. And it was actually Brexit that, that really made me think that he was going to win. But um, I just, I think that there was a, I can only speak about America semi-intelligently, and even there I'm far from an expert. But um, I think that there was this feeling Generally, that a you know this sort of a, a naive post-racial notion that just electing a black president meant we were all set, you know, and <laughs> there were going to be no more problems. And but I think that if you if you worked in the administration, if you worked in politics, you you saw that there was actually a huge backlash that was just kind of building and gaining power that was scary, and that Republicans were intentionally stoking um, just the candidacy of Donald Trump, just the candidacy was alarming and he won that primary and once he won that primary what was to prevent him from winning the general right so and then I also think there was just a complacency about on the Democratic side you know of course Hillary will win well then you have to show up and vote you know it's um, and and people didn't so um, so I think that they 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 were not missing the signs and um, now I didn't know this because I was not privy to anything you know Important or top secret when I worked in the White House, but you know, in retrospect, clearly the, the American government was understood what Russia was doing. I mean, President, you know, they they tried to warn congressional leaders, um, and Mitch McConnell refused to do anything about it. The FBI, now we know, Jim Comey was investigating Trump's uh, in you know interactions with Russia before they were even investigating Hillary. Clinton. I mean, so that stuff was going on. And people who know more than I do did know that was going on. But what was tricky was that they were scared to sort of bring it up to the American people um, because of the fear that if Hillary won, it would seem as though Obama had put the thumb on the scale for her. Um, and, that I th- and, and of course, Republicans would have capitalized on that, right? They were so afraid of how Mitch McConnell would politicize it that they didn't say anything. And I, I feel like... That I find chilling. You know, that's the stuff that's scary. So, I think I do think globally, generally speaking, we've all kind of been complacent. Um, and, you know, Brexit happened, and and I think people and I was, you know, we were surprised in America and you know terrified that it would happen, and then it happened. There, there is something in the air. There's something going on, and people have to pay attention to it. And, you know, the last thing I'll say about this is I think what is unhelpful is the billionaires at Davos sitting around twiddling their thumbs being like, oh, there it goes, liberal world order, there it goes, as long as I'm still making a buck. I mean, I I think that that is not helpful. Um, The conversations have to get bigger than that and they have to be more inclusive and we can't keep letting those people make these decisions. Um, So, for what that's worth.
2: (laughs) Well, I said I had one last question for you, if you don't mind. of course. Um, Which, you know, you can't help but get this impression, sharing a stage with you, which is, uh, would you ever consider running for office?
3: Oh, God, no. No, and fortunately, I live in Washington, D.C., where there is nothing to run for because we are effectively disenfranchised. (laughs) So, no, I never have to do that. Uh, So you should move. (laughs) (laughs) No, I have have zero desire to do that. (laughs) But I might be applying for asylum here, so please.
1: (laughs) (laughs)
0: Thank you so much for, for doing this. This is amazing. I'm going to bring up Kareem Bardisi to give
1: the uh, thank you remarks. Thanks, Kent. Um, and thank you, uh, you uh, Don and Sarada. It's, it's a real privilege to um, have on stage uh, and be on stage with two people. Uh, from whom I've learned so much about the how and why of politics and why and how and why I do politics and maybe some of us uh, and continue to learn, learn that. So it's a great privilege. Thank you. I um, just want to say thank you to the, uh, to the sponsors, uh, to the Empire Club team, uh, Kent, um, Jenna, uh, Bill and Marie, uh, the Ryerson Leadership Lab team, which I believe is mostly over there, uh, including the uh, students and TAs who are associated with the Ryerson Leadership Lab. Uh, Leadership Lab, as Kent mentioned, is an action-oriented think tank Working at the intersection of leadership development and public policy to really advance some of our most pressing public challenges. And I'm really proud of this Visiting Global Fellows program that we have that brings people like Sarada here for uh, three to five days to, to teach, to engage with um, stakeholders, to engage with people like you, uh, to tell their stories. Uh, Sarada started this morning at uh, eight o'clock with a workshop on speech writing. Um, and then spent uh, time with my uh, students. Uh, spent some time with some indigenous change makers, um, uh, young indigenous leaders. Now this event, and we've got her chalk a block tomorrow, and then uh, uh, taking her to Ottawa on Wednesday. So very much appreciative of her time and her letting us uh, call her a visiting global fellow, uh, and all that that means. Turns out I have the power to just decide who's a visiting global fellow. So, so. So if there's any non-Canadian citizens here we'd <laughs> like that, uh, we, can, we can talk. Uh, also thank well, you. Well, maybe to, I'll move. <laughs> <laughs> um, also thank you to the, uh, to the staff at Malapart, the media team, and all those who helped uh, prepare the food and make this event uh, uh, a very welcoming one. So thank you very much.
0: Thanks, Kareem. And on that note, there is more food coming. Uh, the bar is going to be reopened, so you can go home uh, in the snow, but you can also stay. <laughs> uh, our evening events are something that a uh, president started a couple years ago, Paul Foglin. And they're meant to be fun and interactive and engaging. Uh, we'll be having some more announcements on that in the next few weeks about what our next one is. But we t- try to do one a month, and we really find that it just kind of gives more uh, of a chance to unwind than, uh, than our lunches. We have some great lunches coming up. We have Victor Montigiani, the vice president of FIFA on Wednesday, and we have uh, a number of announcements coming up about provincial and federal cabinet ministers. So, I will uh, we'll get to check the website in the next few days. Thank you guys for coming.